Luke chapter 14. Jesus is continuing to work his way down as he began in Caesarea Philippi. That place where um, Peter gave his great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was there in that region as when we were there, we covered it that um, um, all the false gods were there. In fact, the um, legend had that the god Pan had been birthed out of that cave, that grotto. Some of you were with us in Israel this last May. And uh, they're at the foot of Mount Hermon where it's one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Water gushes out. Now, this is the first year that I've been there that it really wasn't gushing out. They've had a, kind of a drought. But uh, it's, uh, it's just a humongous torrent of water that comes out. And it was there that um, Jesus began to make his way down to Jerusalem about six months and he's working his way down, not straight down, but he's going back and forth through villages and that, going over to Berea, the other side of Jordan, and coming back. And he's ministering the gospel. And Luke gives us this very concentrated and very detailed, specific accounts that none of the other gospels give us. Of how Adam and Jesus Christ was walking under these six months, proclaiming the kingdom of God had arrived and the need of repentance through the gospel. And at the same time, demonstrating that the focus is the Jew, because he was sent to his own, that they just plainly rejected it over and over again. And sometimes we, we lose sight that the same thing happens around us. Those loved ones who uh, have seen our lives um, change, those loved ones that have uh, been watching you and uh, listening to you, and thank God for those that do come to the Lord. But it isn't the majority that turn their life to Christ. It isn't uh, great numbers. Now, sometimes we hear of great numbers according to the evangelists. And sometimes evangelists speak more evangelistically than evangelistically. And, uh, but... Even those numbers, if they were accurate, they, um, they are really a very small, small, minute number in comparison to all the people in the world. In fact, I've told you before that more people know about Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola than Jesus Christ today in the world. More people knew about Jesus Christ in the past. For the first time in our nation, there are people in the United States that have never heard about Jesus Christ and the gospel. So other nations are sending missionaries to America. <laughs> it's amazing what's going on. And so here, as Jesus has been um, preaching and teaching and from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 17, verse 10, it's, it's one discourse that's on the Sabbath. So he gives us a lot of things that are going on. And Jesus had just finished speaking on the Sabbath and healing that woman of 18 years that was bent over in chapter 13, verse 10. And again, we're going to see the Sabbath is a key thing because they're always trying to trap Jesus because they revered the Sabbath so much 
that um, they had made it a, a god. They had made it something that God never made, intended it to be because of their interpretations as we saw this morning and we'll see a little bit tonight. And so chapter 1, verse 124, again, as we did in depth this morning, I'm not going to belabor it. You can pick up the message. But we have the dinner invitation that's accepted by Jesus here. Now what happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. So once again, as he went into the house of Simon uh, the Pharisee in chapter 7, the other Pharisee in chapter 11 that was shocked that Jesus didn't wash his hands out of the traditions of, of the Pharisees. Um, here again, he accepts another invitation. And certainly, Jesus, that we're going to see, he, he read their thoughts. So he knew them before he got there. Sometimes we won't accept an invitation if we have an inclination that someone doesn't like us or if they're just going to just try to set us up or something. Jesus knew this. Let me make it a little clearer. When Jesus um, took the disciples in the upper room and was going to celebrate the Passover, um, Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot knowing he was going to betray him. And then prior to the Passover, he left. Would you have washed Judas's feet? <laughs> Jesus was pleading with Judas, repent. Check after check after check after check. But he did not. Jesus um, is our example about loving our enemies, about being more like Him. Hopefully we're, we're examples to each other and for each other, but the lack of example of each other is no excuse to not be example after Christ. Too many people excuse their uh, sloppy living by blaming somebody else, a pastor, a Christian, or something. That holds no water. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is your example. He is your model. And so even here, we see his, um, uh, his purpose was not to um, humiliate them, but to love them. Hopefully they repent. But again, sometimes men's hearts are so set and so hard that even the love of God can't, can't touch some lives. So they're watching him, hoping that he makes some mistake. Um, uh, these guys were lawyers. They had interpreted the law. They had made and codified it with the Mishnah, the Talmud. Um, they had volumes of the law. And yet, all of a sudden, behold, verse 2 says, there was a um, certain man before him who had dropsy. So they had planted this man. This is a private home. This is after Sabbath, right, be, right, right, right before Sabbath, right after Friday. So it's sundown. Uh, the food has been prepared beforehand. And um, maybe this Pharisee was even a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we're not told, but possibly. And, um, and in, in his house here, there's a man with a dropsy. It's a medical term that Luke gives. He's a physician about this uh, condition that the body retains fluid and water, and it swells, and it's very painful, and many times it's terminal. And, um, and of course, he's been planted there. 
Now, when they had dinners at times, and we saw this, um, um, I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but with um, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, when the woman walked in and began to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair, well, many times when there was a rabbi or somebody important or great fees, they would leave the doors open. And people could enter in and be at the court and just observe. I mean, they couldn't come and sit at the tables and that. So uh, the culture is a little different. So sometimes we don't understand. Well, how'd they get there? How, how could they allow them? It's a little different, the culture. And so uh, here again, they're having their eye out. Just very discreet, scrupulous, uh, trying to find fault because they've planted this man. And they, and they identify Jesus with the person with the greatest need again. And Jesus, in verse 3, answered and spoke to the lords and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Again, nobody spoke anything, but he understood their thoughts, as he did with Simon and many others. And he lays out exactly what they have in store. They want to bust him. So in verse 4, But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. So Jesus knew all along, and he healed his man, just let him go. No, no big deal. He didn't make no big to-do, and... You know, um, um, but he saw the heart of these men that they were so evil in their own heart that they would rather let this man uh, remain in his condition uh, than to have him healed. To that extent, they wanted to go. But Jesus humbled them so they never got to that point. He, he reversed it on them. And then in verse 4 says, But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Again, totally silent. They can't say a thing. In verse 5, um, Jesus now um, says, Then he answered them, saying, So knowing their thoughts, he turns around, and now he expresses his understanding of their hypocrisy. Which of you, having a donkey, so he turned it on them. They were going to bust him on the Sabbath? So he's going to make sure that they get busted for their own interpretation. Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen to the pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Well, it's a question that they, they really didn't want to answer and they could not answer. Because if they said, uh, none of us, they would be lying. He said immediately. So in other words, the implication is that they had laid this on the people, but not on themselves. So, so they were hypocritical, their life of duplicity. Um, and yet, the law had made provisions for animals if they fell in a pit. What you did if an animal went astray and, and, and you found it to take it back to his master and all of that. And Exodus 23.5 and Deuteronomy 22.4. And the law is full of these little things. What you do, what happens if you... Uh, if you hire a man with his ox and, and while you hired him um, and this ox dies, how do you work out that business deal? And the law is very specific. But if you borrow the ox and then it gets hurt and dies, then you've got to pay back much more because you borrowed it. It wasn't for hire. And God, all these little details that, that God had put in the law so that they could uh, be just, they could be fair, civil, ceremonial law everything um, they, they couldn't answer him uh, regarding these things uh, and so their silence they got trapped in verse 7 down to 11 we have the parable of the ambitious guest and and so he's building off this very scenario there's there in the home he heals this man um, but there's the feast going on 
Okay, and Jesus is watching everybody. And, and so he told a parable of, uh, to those who were uh, invited when he noted how they chose the best places saying to them. So he has silenced the religious leaders, the lawyers, the Pharisees. Now he moves on to the guests. Uh, they're acting like a bunch of yahoos. Um, they're just choosing the best of seeds. They're trying to, you know, out, outdo each other. And um, these are the, um, they're triple seating chairs, trichliniums. They would lean back, as you know, um, on their elbow, and they would eat and sit at the table. They were low, and they were in a U-shape, and usually nine, three on each side. And, and the center would be, uh, center would be the, uh, uh, the most honorable position, and then left, right, as it is. And, and here again, they're, they're, they're looking for these things uh, because they think so highly of themselves. And this is the nature of man. Uh, when you set yourself up in whatever you do, if you're not born again, you want to be number one. You want to be the one that's noticed. Um, but if you are raised even in a moral and ethical society, one that has manners and social graces, even though you're a sinner, there is some restraint by society. When society is the conscience of, of, the, of, the, of the people, then there's some civility, there's some order, there's some productivity. But when society has no longer a conscience for society, the people within it, then there's total chaos and disorder that takes place. And people go backwards and there's no stability. And so he says, when you are uh, invited by anyone uh, to a wedding feast, so not just this one, but anyone, he says, do not sit down in the best places lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. Um, and he who invited you and him uh, come and say to you, give place to this man. So you sat in the seat that was given to a man more honorable than you. You're a guest. You should have waited to be seated. You took this seat. So the guest arrives that's been invited and designated to that seat. So him and the, the host come and they're going to ask you to remove yourself from there and go to a lower place. So rather than when you exalt yourself and we're going to see the punchline of the parable, then you end up being abased. And so he says, and, and, he, and he says to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. <clears throat> and so here again, embarrassment, disgracefulness um, because of the pride of of taking the initiative in a location, in a setting that really you have no business in. But because people get caught up with themselves, they do the darnest things. It's amazing what they do. And so, in verse 10, Jesus points out the benefit of having a modest view of self, of uh, being humble. But when you are invited, Go and sit down to the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will give glory um, to the, uh, in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. So now you, the man sees you and says, hey, I didn't know you were going to come here. Come on over here. I got a better seat for you. 
and and maybe you you you've done something like that sometime. Maybe you've gone somewhere and you just dropped by or something, and and you just didn't want to bring attention to yourself, and you kind of just back, kind of looking, and all of a sudden your friend or whoever it was says, "Hey, hey, hey, you come on up here, come on up here." Oh no, no, it's okay. No, come on up here, and they bring you up and right to the front, maybe or the wedding or whatever it may be, and. You know, because you, you didn't just barge and say, hey, dude, what are you doing? You know, it's a whole different thing. They exalt you. They bring you forward. And so it's always to have a modest view of self. But this is very difficult for the sin nature, for fallen man. And more so in a society when arrogance and, 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 and um, pride of thinking oneself higher than you should, when that is the philosophy and the indoctrination in the schools and, and, and everything else, then you have a society that, that becomes um, very um, insensitive and very intimidating and very arrogant. And to an extent, it goes to the point where it becomes very unsafe. It, it, it just accelerates forward. Um, verse 11 is the punchline to the parable. For whoever exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the parable has one message. Pride abases you. Humility exalts you. There's your punchline. In verse 12 to 14 of the parable, now of a dinner. And then he also said to him who invited him. So he's moved from the lawyer's. They were there. They were going to bust him. He's gone to the guest. Now he turns to the host, the Pharisee that invited him. He says, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. And so here he demonstrates and he reveals to the host, his heart. His intention is really to just be in the social uh, status and the circle. And if you invite someone to eat, then he knows that they will be obligated to invite him to eat. He may not even like them, but because they have a certain social status, then he invites them and just puts up with them and puts on a good face because his interest is that they, he knows that now they are kind of obligated to invite him. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how some relationships are like that, even among Christians when they're carnal. Where they don't deal with reality with people and, and, and who they really are. And they just go through motions and without any reality sometimes. And... Um, They'll just pretend to be something more honorable than they are or that they uh, really like you when they don't. And, and God help us, that's what we used to be. We should be able to have honesty between each other. If something that I have against you or you have against me, then the Bible says that the, the one who, who has offended you, then you the innocent party have the obligation to go to the guilty party and to get right. If your brother has something against you, Matthew 18, you go to him and get right. 
A lot of times we say, well, I didn't do nothing. Let him come to me. No, no, no. The Bible says, you innocent? Yeah. Then responsibility falls on you. Because he's blind at this. He's the one that sinned. He's wrong. But he thinks he's right. You have the clear head. You're to approach him. And how? Paul says in Galatians, in the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tested and confronted with such a situation. So, here again, um, this parable, the invitation of friends, brothers, relatives, even rich people. And notice the pronoun, your, 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 but not for the rich. <laughs> and so it's almost a payback. So you have me over your house, and then you dog, I have to have X over next time. And, and then if I'm in the same kind of boat, every time I see you, I just say, you, week after week, I keep looking. And I go, oh, he didn't ask me. Oh, wow. And the week goes like, hey, hi, hi. Wow, he didn't ask me again. You know, and it's like, you know, we're playing tag. Now, nothing wrong with inviting each other over the house or whatever, you understand. But it's, it's the game that people play in the world. And the motive behind it. And so Jesus warns here in this parable. Verse 13 says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. So get out of your social circle and be a little bit more compassionate. He says, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so here again, Jesus not only reveals the man's heart, but he gives him instruction on what he should be doing since he has much. Notice the list changed from 13 to now, here in 14, where he says that they will be repaid in the resurrection if they do this your friends the poor your brothers the main your relatives the lame rich neighbors the blind <laughs> what a parallel what a contrast and of course we're going to see as he moves along jesus is 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 is, is moving towards the preaching of the gospel. This is what the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. The, when we sit with the Lord and those that will be in heaven. And that's where he's going. Um, you know, all the feasts down here really mean nothing. Uh, when, when we see uh, how temporal and how vain it is. Uh, but in the kingdom of God. Um, that, that's, that's the thing to, to shoot for. And so, um, in verse 15 to four to 24 you have the parable now the third one of the great supper um matthew 22 1 to 10 has the parable of the marriage of the son and it's similar to it but it's not parallel to this um one through 24 is unique of uh, of luke is not found anywhere else um but here in 15 he says now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things. So one of the Pharisees, the lawyers there, he says, he said to him, Blessed is he 
who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. So now, as this man blurts out this declaration, he's one of the men on the table, most likely of Pharisees, we said this morning. And whether this is just some declaration of uh, platitude or just, you know, religious garb, you know, Christians can fall into this kind of stuff. You know, sometimes um, it may be um, um, uh, new Christian zeal. And because they're born again, whatever it is, then, you know, they just get onto the phrase like, uh, um, praise you, Jesus, or, or praise the Lord. And it's, it's every other word and all that. And, you know, and that's, that, that's, again, a form of using the Lord's name in vain. Uh, we shouldn't just use, you know, I mean, if God does something and he heals you, oh, praise God, that's great. Let's thank the Lord. And that's okay. But if you're saying praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord for everything and praise God or Maranatha, or the, you know, I mean, you know, you're speaking uh, Christianese and that. I mean, you know, and, and then people think you're some kind of crazy person. I mean, if God does, then praise him. And let's say praise the Lord. But, but let's make those things, those words count. Uh, that they're meaningful. Um, here again, I, I don't know of this guy, but by the context of the whole thing, I think that he was sincere in who he was, believing he was going to be there in the kingdom age. But as you look at the whole context of it, he's speaking against the religious rulers, and they will not enter the kingdom of God. That's the punchline at the bottom of this, uh, of this uh, parable. That they will not. Those that were invited. He's talking about the Jews. The context of this whole 24 verses is the Jews. The religious people that thought they were going to be. And they're sure they were going to be there. But they were not. Remember Matthew 7. In that day. Lord, Lord, open unto us. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. The Bible is very clear that we have to um, abide in Christ and not deceive ourselves according to the words of Jesus and James. That we have to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, according to Paul. That we have to keep our account short, according to John and 1 John 2, 1. And remain in fellowship with him. And to trust and depend upon him, and to be growing, and to be uh, seeking his will, and to be becoming more like him, less like us. Adding to our faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, so, temperance, so on and so forth. Growing, developing, and maturing. Never thinking that I've arrived, even as Paul says, one thing uh, I do. Forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to those things that are ahead. Many of the good things that are behind me can cause me to just kick back and be smug and content. And many of the bad stuff behind me can trip me up and cause me to be discouraged. So I don't want to look back. I want to look from today forward. The past only serves me to know that God will work. It can't tell me how he's going to work. So you have to make sure that, you know, I mean, you're, you drive down the freeway, the street. You don't drive looking backwards, do you? You're going to crash. You look forward. Now, once in a while, I have to look in the back. Usually through my mirrors. Once in a great while, I'll have to turn. But those times that I look at my mirrors and look back, it's the exception. 
When you drive, you look forward. When you're walking with Jesus, you're growing, you're developing, you're, you're, you're going forward. You, you bump into things. How often now, since with the, you know, all the, the phone things and all these ear things and people are jogging or walking and they're so busy and they smack into a pole. You know how many people get hurt because of their phones? As they're walking, they walk right off ledges, they walk in front of a car all the time. Driving, texting, you've got to be crazy. I mean, if you kill yourself, you deserve it. But to kill somebody else? Distractions. Looking forward. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Listen, there are so many distractions, not only of the world and of the flesh, but of Satan, to just distract you from keeping your eyes on Jesus, from moving forward, from looking to Him and, and, and no one else. And so... Um, here again, um, he, he's talking about um, th this great supper, um, eating bread in the kingdom of God, and this guy just blurts it out. In verse 16 says, Then he said to him, so he turned to the man who said this, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now, as we go through the parable, the great man is really God the Father. He's the one that sets the supper. And he sends a servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, he's talking to the Jews. To them were given all the oracles of God throughout the Old Testament through the law and the prophets. The promise was of Messiah to bring in the kingdom and he himself to be the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. He says, there all things are made ready. 400 years of silence has been broken. John the Baptist opened up and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven or God is at hand. So, the first call, the invitation, was all the Old Testament, the prophets, the law. The second call here, everything is ready. John the Baptist, the Messiah has arrived. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Right on time, when the world was Rome, the Pax of Romana, the, the peace of the world, there was no war. Huge, broad, straight, smooth roads for people to travel long distances. One unifying language, Greek, right on time for the gospel to go all over the world. <laughs> God's on the throne. God's in control of history. But even as he's in control of history, he doesn't force men to repent. He doesn't force men to go to heaven. Each man and woman has to make that decision. And that's the point of all this that is going on with Jesus. And Luke is pointing that to us. The urgency of the arrival of the kingdom. The time to repent is while people are alive. 
while the Holy Spirit is still knocking on the door of their heart, while there is still conviction. And so here again, verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. This is the nation of Israel. This is the Jews constantly rejecting the fact that the kingdom had arrived, the fact that Jesus was Messiah. And so he gives us three examples of excuses. The first said to him, I have um, um, bought a piece of ground and I uh, must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Um, as we said this morning, this man is either a liar or a fool because who in the world buys a piece of ground without examining it first? Um, but the emphasis is for gain, for business perhaps. Uh, and many people have um, turned their back on the gospel, walked away from God after having come to him because of money, because of business. Um, people who were used by God tremendously, God sidetracked uh, with the ensnarement of riches, Paul tells Timothy, bringing upon themselves uh, many sorrows. The second one, in verse 19, another said, I have um, bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you uh, to have me excuse. Once again, if, if you're purchasing these animals uh, to do your work on your property, uh, who would buy them without testing them first? And if uh, you're going to go test them at night, how are you going to do that equally for the property? At night? So you can see that the excuses are just lame. And, and you've heard excuses by people when you ask, well, what, are you a Christian? No, why not? Well, I, um, I, I just can't believe this. Oh, I, 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 I've been ripped off by this or whatever. Just excuses at home or water. Um, excuses and justifications, we have many, but um, they don't stand any, any validity before God. He doesn't accept any of them. Uh, the two thieves on the cross, they both were equally distant with Jesus Christ. They both equally hurt him, and they each made a choice. And there were no excuses one way or the other. One went to heaven, the other one went to hell. Jesus didn't send one to heaven and the other to hell. They chose to go there by their decision about Jesus Christ. And this is always the basis by which a person will spend eternity with God or separated from God. That doesn't go well with the world. Especially today in our politically correct, tolerant, mamby, pamby, sissified world. That's thin skin, even in the church. Because they don't want to offend anybody. You cannot offend and say anything against anyone or anything in America today except Christians. They're open game. Absolutely. No way for but about it. When's the last time you heard about Christians going to Washington or petitioning the Senate to take down the, um, uh, the Indian monument that they're making on Crazy Horse because it's racist. But you do hear them saying that they want to change the name of the Redskins. 
and they're going to take them another 20 years to finish that monument. They don't even know what he looks like. It is so hypocritical. It's incredible. Still another excuse. Still another said, I have um, married a wife and therefore I, I cannot come. Once again, if you're newly wed, uh, you would be thankful for a good dinner. <laughs> you would go. In, um, particularly in this scenario, we're talking about the God's invitation. Uh, who put a wife before having a fellowship with God? Um, those, those are wrong priorities. And we'll see that a little more as he moves along. And so in verse 21, so that the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house, being angry, seeing the rejection, because they were already expected to come. They said they would come, and all of a sudden, all these lame excuses. And he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring the, uh, in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. So these are the Jews that probably were looked down upon by the Pharisees and the lawyers. Um, the ones who didn't think they had any, any chance of being in heaven. Any chance of being one with God. But they were the humble. They were the, the broken. Um, they were the ones that would be open. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways, the hedges, the, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. The word compel doesn't mean to force them, but in the context here, it's talking about compelling them by letting them know that they are invited, that the master wants them to come, compelling them by the love of God. It's the love of God that constrains us, Paul says, to love our enemies, to love the Lord, to do the will of the Lord. And so when we plead with people, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says. It's the love of God that, that, that works within us to be able to, to go out of our way to minister the gospel, to, to be patient with those that have doubts, with even those who are pretty... Uh, um, hostile towards us or the gospel. That's the evidence that God is in us. Again, Jesus is our example. And so this is a compelling to go out and entreat them, to persuade them, to, to draw them by the cords of love that God will accept them. Here's the punchline of this parable, 24. For I say to you, that none of these or those men who were invited, the Jews, Israel, shall taste my supper. This is not the first time he's told us this. He's going to say it over and over again before we get through with Luke. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and says, Oh, how many times I wanted to gather you as a hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. So now I leave unto you desolate, and you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus gave Israel up. The olive tree. And he grafted in the wild olive branch, the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile one in Christ Jesus. 
breaking down the middle wall of partition by the grace of God. Verse 25 down to 33, we have the seriousness of um, answering the call to be a disciple. One of the interesting things about Jesus as you study the Word of God is, especially the Gospels where he gives us so much, is that Jesus always laid down what it was going to cost to be his disciple. Sometimes ministers and ministries hype everything up and speaking very positive things and all that. And, and in America, it's real easy because we've never suffered. We, we have never been under persecution. So all the attraction for ministry often in America is the bigness of the church or, or, or the, the money or, or the notoriety or, or, or whatever it may be. And so people want to be part of that. And, and, and yeah, I'll be this and that. But in other countries, and, and the majority of them since the beginning of, of, uh, of Christianity, uh, after the day of Pentecost, the majority of Christians have had to suffer for their faith. Many of them have had to hide and uh, be very careful. Uh, we in America, we have never experienced this, though we are experiencing a great change and turn in our nation, particularly in the last six and a half years, this administration has become very hostile uh, with all its czars towards Christianity and the church. The latest of people being emboldened is the mayor there in uh, um, Houston, Texas, demanding for the pastor's notes. Well, they bombarded her with notes and books and everything else. <laughs> But everybody got after her. But see, they keep pushing the agenda. And the sooner things break out in America, the better off we're going to be. The sooner the day really gets serious, then we're going to see if we're going to be able to get a judgment of the Supreme Court or if the whole nation is going to cave in. And I don't think it's going to be long. But... Um, here again, um, Jesus lays it out in verse 25 to 27, the cost of discipleship. We've had some parallels before about this. If you want to uh, be a disciple, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow him. Uh, Matthew 10, 37 38 also. And 25 says, Now great multitude went out with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother... And wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now, how many people do you think would answer an altar call with that kind of a proclamation? They're not going to give you that altar call like that. They're going to say, are you tired of your life? Do you want peace? Do you want your life to get better? Come. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you tell sinners that they are under God's wrath. And that God died for them. And rose from the dead. And that he became the atonement for their sins. And that they believe that he took 
their place on the cross, that he is able to forgive them and make them new, but they must repent of their sins and trust God to remove that wrath from their life and to be pardoned by grace through faith. And so you share the gospel that people see their need of repentance because they are enemies of God and they are under God's wrath. And if they don't repent, they will perish. Not because you want your life changed. Not just because you want a better life. It's because you want to cease from being an enemy of God and under the wrath of God. It's real simple. And so here he lays this out and it almost seems like it's um, anti-family, huh? <laughs> One of the great accusations of the early church was that the Christians were um, homewreckers. Because when someone was born again, uh, especially as a Jew, the, the family had a funeral. You were considered as dead. That's even true today. If you are an Orthodox Jew and you come to the Lord, your family will write you off. And they see you in the street. They will look right past you and they will not even acknowledge you. You are as dead. The principle here is not that you have to hate your wife, husband, brother, sister, whatever, but that you have to love God more than your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, or anyone else. Because if you love others more than God, then when you make a commitment to God, and those people you love more than God ask things of you, the priority to do things will be for them and not for God. The Bible says that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourselves. The first commandment is that vertical. Because really, in reality, it's a very negative command that results in a very positive outcome. If I love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I love Jesus as I'm supposed to more than anything else, then and only then will I be able to love my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my wife, and my children properly. According to God's word, according to God's love, according to God's standards. So when Jesus says this, he lays it out. But also on the flip side, it means that if you do want to be a disciple, if you do want to follow Jesus, and this is salvation, this is a disciple. When you're saved, you are called to be a disciple, a student, a pupil. I've I, I heard some pastors that are very prominent say, well, you can be a believer, but not all believers are disciples, but you can still be a believer. There's only one kind of believer, and that's a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're not a student of the Word of God, and you're not denying yourself, but you're loving others more than Jesus, and it's always tails for God and heads for you or somebody else. There, there's a real problem. Uh, how would your wife or husband feel if you say, well, tonight I'm going to go out with my girlfriend or with my wife. Who am I going to go? Okay. You think your wife would like that? How about your husband? How about your kids? Uh, they say, dad, take us to the show. I say, wait, okay, heads for you guys to the show. Tails, I'm going to go out to the ball game with my friends. Okay? You guys ready? Even they know that doesn't go. 
So the priority for life is loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Because we cannot give what we do not have. And so it's love more than your wife or husband. In fact, Matthew 10, 37 says, He who loves father and mother more than me. The word hate is a comparison, not an extreme or opposite. The whole aspect is of more and comparison here. Notice in verse 27, he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. That settles it. Jesus said it. You can't say you're a believer if you're not a disciple. It's simple. A disciple is a student. My willingness to submit to the total will of God. No rivals. Whosoever believes that he's the son of God who died, they can be saved. It's a call to dying to self. The cross is a emblem of death. The cross is whatever God calls me to, whether it be sufferings, difficulties, my submission to him, my openness to him. Now, sometimes we, um, we get a weird understanding about um, the cross, and we say, well, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I just married the wrong person. Is this, this my cross to bear? No. That's your mistake. That's not your cross. But it doesn't have to remain a mistake, because now you're a Christian, and you're to die to self and love your wife, and you're to die to self and submit and love your husband. The potentials in Christ. So you can't say, well, you know, my cross is, you know, this job. or the No, no. There's normal things in life, difficulties, testings and all that. But that's not our cross. My cross is whatever God calls me to be and do. That he brings in as part of my life. Not the dumb things I bring on myself. Or maybe you have a very difficult mother-in-law, you know. And you say, yeah, my mother-in-law, she's my cross. No, no, no. That ain't your cross. And we use it so flippantly. Um, Jesus said, you sure you want to be my disciple? Listen carefully. The birds have nests. Foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? Jesus is a little different than the evangelists, aren't they? <laughs> a little different. He, he lays it all on the line. Consider it well. In fact, he's going to give us some illustrations of considering the cost. That just kind of just shed some light on it. In verse 28 down to 30, we have the illustrations. Um, first of um, building a tower. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he, is, he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. So, the point is that there is a cost to consider. It may cost you everything. If you're not willing to be able to put everything down, then there's no sense telling Jesus you want to be a disciple, right? That's what he's saying. It's real simple. 
You see, today we make things so easy for people as Christians. And again, it's not my job to make it hard for you. But I'm supposed to make it very clear. That's your decision with Jesus and your commitment to the Lord. But I shouldn't misrepresent God and what he requires. He doesn't want just a piece of your life. He wants all of your life. Every bit of it. Because he knows he's the only one that can be a good manager for all that you are and all that you have. The towers were for protection and for dwelling. They would build them in their vineyards so they can stay there during the harvest and at the same time to watch that thieves don't steal the harvest. And it took some time to build it. And he makes this illustration about discipleship. You have to abide. You have to be vigilant. Lest they mock you. And how many men and women have come to the Lord and all these, oh yeah, the Lord saved me. And then two, three years later or three months later, the friend said, hey, look at that guy. He said, look at him. He's at the bar today. Or he's down there at a strip joint or, you know... And, and they mock, yeah, they're Christians, you know how they are. And so it's what he's talking about here. All of us have experienced that from non-believers. Then in 31, down to 33, we have the second illustration of uh, danger and hostility and warfare. Or what king going to war, uh, to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with the 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still great ways off he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace so this illustration the first king sits down to consider can I defeat this guy though he has twice as many soldiers as I have maybe as I look at my armory and I look at my my generals, and I look at my strategic points, I can do that. But if he's considering these things and analyzing the war plans, and he says, I don't think so, then he would be wise to consider there's early enough to be able to send a delegation to, to ask for peace, lest he be conquered and enslaved, right? Well, well the same thing here in 33, the punchline. So likewise, there's a punchline to, uh, to every parable. The little illustration even. The, the first one was verse 30, now it's 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So it's loving the Lord above anyone or anything, laying everything at his feet completely. That's what he says a disciple is. Pretty extreme, isn't it? <laughs> and he doesn't apologize for it. The last one is 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has an ear, let him, uh, let him hear. And so the illustration of the nature of salt, it gives a, a flavor to food that's flat. 
It's also preservative. It's also a purifier. Salt also makes you thirsty. It's a great little thing. But if the salt loses its ability to give flavor, it goes flat. It's worthless. It can't season salt. It can't purify. It can't preserve. Now, you know that Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right? He's talking to disciples. Many people soften this like, well, you know, if you lose your salt, you know, you're still saved. This and that. He, he says it's, it's only good for one thing to be thrown out. There are many people that have been on fire for God and God has used them and they're no longer walking with God, but they're back in the world. The thing to do is to repent and ask God to make, to resalt you. <laughs> that you come back to your first love. That you understand the responsibility and accountability and that all these illustrations, the three here, say one thing. You cannot do it in yourself. You can only do it if you trust Jesus. You commit yourself to him as a disciple, and he enables you. And then you walk in obedience. You seek his will. You yield to him. You abide in him. You grow. You develop. You mature. And you watch him do the work for you that you cannot do in yourself. That's what he's talking about here. The punchline is very, very clear. He who has an ear, let him hear. Don't just explain it away. Well, you know, if you lose your soul, you just kind of, he just kind of puts you on the shelf and you just lose your rewards. And we have all these stupid explanations. <laughs> he's talking about being a disciple. Either you are or you are not. Either you are and you lose your saltiness or you don't. He's not talking about rewards. He's talking about being a disciple. Context, context, context. Be a good spiritual hound dog. Do not go up rabbit trails. Stick to the text. Jesus is headed for the cross. He's speaking very clear and very serious about being his disciple. So may God give us wisdom as we continue to walk with him and to learn of him. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. We pray that you continue to teach us. And Lord, we thank you for just uh, the ability to be able to read and understand and to sit at your feet, Lord. Lord, I thank you for just giving us this building that we're able to house your people and to be able to just study your word and to minister the gospel to so many, Lord. And Father, tonight we pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts, maybe over the internet, Lord. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. God can save you where you're at. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins and rose from the dead, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're not smart enough to understand that, nor I. It's the Holy Spirit turning on the light. If you see yourself as a sinner, an enemy of God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
If you desire to repent and ask God to forgive you, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. But you're working in conjunction with the Spirit. I don't understand it. I just know that's the way it works. <laughs> and if you want to repent, this is your prayer to Him right now. And He will cleanse you. He will make a new creature of you. And He will give to you eternal life. Right now, this is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.